Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Here in first grade and down below that, you may leave to go to Kids Own Worship. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 as we continue looking at the life of Philip, the evangelist. And as you're turning there, I need you to know that I had the dubious honor of living in a small town called Greenville, Texas, For three years of my life, from kindergarten through third grade, I lived in Greenville, Texas, and my father was the associate pastor of a prominent Baptist church there. But there's something you need to know about Greenville, Texas. It's infamous for a sign that hung on Main Street from about the 1920s until they took it down in the 1960s. Here's what the sign said, home of the blackest land and the whitest people. Now, at first glance, you got the response that you should have gotten. Their argument was the land was dark because of the cotton-growing soil. But there were racial undertones in that sign. You see, in that community, there was racial discrimination in the late 70s when I was living there against black people. As I said, my father was an associate pastor of a prominent Baptist church there, and he decided to start a basketball league in the Family Life Center and to invite underprivileged kids from the community. And he almost had a mutiny on his hands from the deacons because actually black kids would be in the church, and we couldn't have that. We could not go swimming in the public pool in Greenville, Texas. We had to drive 30 miles away to another town to go swimming because they did not want the blacks and whites to be in the same community pool together. In my lifetime, I experienced that. And let me just say right up front, I despise racism in any form. Some of my best friends growing up were black, Hispanic, Asian, Korean, and Indian. And when it comes to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all racial barriers come crashing down. Do you believe in the power of the gospel to not only save sinners from their sins, but also to break down barriers? Can God save someone different than you? Philip believed that. Last week, we were introduced to Philip, and he took a major step in the unfolding of the early church, this radical move by going to the Samaritans. He went out to the Samaritans. And if you remember the Samaritans, they, they weren't quite Jewish. They weren't quite Gentile. They were half-breeds. They were, they were halfway in between, and, and the Jews practiced racial prejudice, discrimination against the Samaritans. But, but Philip would have none of that. He went and he preached the gospel to the Samaritans. God did an amazing work. People were getting saved. The community was being transformed. And God did a great work of grace in the Samaritans. And so Philip not only does that, but as we find out today, he's going to, in love, break another gospel barrier by going to a man from Africa, an Ethiopian man. 
A man that was truly considered an outsider in that culture. So let's read together the rest of Acts chapter 8. We started last week and we looked at, 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 the, at two conundrums and a magician. Today we're looking at one evangelist and an Ethiopian. Just for rhyming purposes, I don't know why. Acts eight twenty six through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, in chapter 8, Philip practices two types of evangelism. What we saw last week would be mass evangelism. He stands up and he preaches to large crowds and people get saved. Mass evangelism. Most of you probably aren't going to do that type of evangelism. The second type of evangelism he does is what most of you probably are going to do. One-on-one dialogues with people. More conversational sharing one-on-one. So what can we learn today from Philip about this whole business of evangelism or, or sharing. I got to just tell you a side note. This just came to my mind. This wasn't even part of my script. But um, when Aiden was younger, I think in second grade, he came home from school and he said, our teachers told us we can't do evangelism or we'll get in trouble at school. And I said, you can't do evangelism? Said, well, what are you talking about evangelism? Yeah, we can't do evangelism or we're going to get arrested for evangelism. And I said, arrested for evangelism? Well, come to find out it wasn't evangelism, it was vandalism. We can't do vandalism. So sometimes evangelism can be vandalism. We're hoping we don't do damage this morning by by sharing Christ. So we're going to understand evangelism, not vandalism. It's interesting here that the angel of the Lord says to Philip, go down to the south road to the Gaza road. Now, if you know anything about the, uh, the geography of that area, Gaza is in the very southern tip of Israel. It's the last water route before you head down to Egypt. And so it's the desert rose. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because Philip was in this hotbed of great activity. Uh, he was in Samaria where people get, were getting saved. There was all this, this great work of God going. And, and Philip didn't care about where the action was. He simply wanted to be obedient to his Lord. And so the Spirit says, go down to the desert place. Go to the back 
backside of nowhere and just hang out. Don't stay here where the action is. Go to the difficult place. Now, for some of you, there may be a desert place God is calling you to go. Now, this doesn't mean that you go to the deep, dark jungles of Africa or you go to among the tribal people of the Bogota of India. That may not be where God's calling you to go, but God may be calling you out of your comfort zone to go share Christ with a sister-in-law or a neighbor or a co-worker or a boss. There may be a desert road that God has for you in his divine appointment that he's calling you to get out of your comfort zone and go be prepared for what God's going to do. Because sometimes God will take us out of our comfort zone and bring about a divine appointment. And that's exactly what happens here. It's in a divine appointment. Philip's on the road and he sees this Ethiopian in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. And so we are introduced here to a new character, the the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't even really have his name. Now, Ethiopia was not back then what our modern-day Ethiopia is. It's probably more like the Sudan, northern Sudan, southern Egypt. And so he is from Africa. He's from the, the, outer, the outer rim of the known world at that time. He's a eunuch. Children, go home and ask your parents what a eunuch is after the service. These men were held in high position in ancient courts because of the fact that they were eunuchs. They weren't a threat to the, the posterity uh, uh, of trying to... You, you just go ask your parents, kids, what a eunuch is. I was tempted to put Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 up on the screen, but I'm not. You can go read that later. But Deuteronomy 23, 1 tells us that eunuchs were not a part of the nation of Israel. They couldn't be part of the temple. They could not be part of the assembly of Israel. And so they were considered outsiders also religiously. And so he's an outsider. All, all barriers that you could think of with a man uh, come facing Philip. He's from Africa, the outer rim. He's a eunuch. He's a Gentile. And all those barriers come crashing down when Philip begins to engage him. All the barriers of racism and discrimination and prejudice. Now let me just stop and talk for a moment. When you begin to look in the recesses of your own heart and find out what really lies there, sometimes you're shocked. You're aghast at the actual prejudice that lies there in your heart. Because let's just be honest with ourselves. All of us in some way or some form have some type of prejudice against other type of people. Whether we like to admit it or not, deep in our hearts when we're faced with that sin, sometimes we have prejudices. Sometimes we practice discrimination. And so we need to understand the power of the gospel. The gospel overcomes that because here's what the gospel says. The gospel says at one time you were offensive to God. God loved you in spite of your sin. He saved you. He redeemed you when you were his enemy. And now because of the power of the gospel, you can be freed to go love others that are different because God loved you. If God gave us what we deserved, all of us would deserve hell. So we don't treat other people with discrimination or prejudice. We treat other people with compassion and kindness because of the compassion and kindness that God has shown us in the gospel. And we've been talking about repentance a lot lately, have we not? It would be foolish and unwise of me as your pastor to stand before you and say, don't repent. If there is some prejudice in your heart, and only you can see that, you've got to examine yourself. If there's prejudice, even racism, discrimination, What better time than now than to repent of that and ask for the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, to give you the power to repent. One thing I want you to notice about Philip, 
His immediate obedience. I mean, the Holy Spirit says, go, and he runs down there. Go join the chariot. Peter, I mean, Philip doesn't sit around and mull things over. He doesn't sit around and, and, and think about it. He, he doesn't sit around and think of all the excuses. He goes and he immediately obeys. He doesn't sit back and say, you know what? I, I really think that I'm having a successful ministry here in Samaria. All these people are getting saved. I probably should stay here. No, the Holy Spirit said, go, he goes. Now, let's just stop for a moment, okay? Because there's a lot of foolishness when it comes to evangelism out there. Sometimes we wait for this inner mystical prompting to somehow give us the goosebumps to go share with somebody. I think the Lord may be leading me to go share with that person. Can I give you full permission on the authority of God's word? You don't need to wait for the liver shiver, okay? You don't need to wait for the goosebumps. God has already told you to witness. So you don't have to wait for this mystical feeling of, should I go share with that person? You've got permission. As a matter of fact, not only do you have permission, you are commanded to go do that. Now, you pray about the appropriate way to do that, but I think sometimes we make evangelism harder than it is, and we're somehow waiting for the inner prompting. Should I go? Should I go? And then the prompting never comes, and so then we never witness, and then we become disobedient. Sometimes I think we just make this whole mystical experience of, I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell me to go witness to somebody. Well, you know what? He's already told you to. It's called the Great Commission. You don't have to wait. Sometimes I think we get ourselves off the hook by doing evangelism, waiting for the goosebumps. What does Peter tell us to do? First Peter one, or First Peter three, fifteen through sixteen, he says this. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Okay, so Philip goes and he, he sees this Ethiopian man reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading from that very important passage of Isaiah 53. And in those days, it wasn't uncommon to read out loud. And the reason you read out loud is sometimes on the scrolls, the letters were so close together that you had to read out loud. And so he's going at a leisurely pace. It's probably like about probably a a five-month trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. So he's leisurely on his chariot reading out loud the book of Isaiah, trying to understand Isaiah chapter 53. What's this whole business about a sheep being led to a slaughter, a lamb before it's... What's all this stuff going on? And notice how Philip engages him. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him, look at that obedience, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Now, this is not confrontational evangelism, is it? He doesn't take the scroll out of the hand and bang him over the head and said, this is Isaiah. He doesn't do that. He basically says, do you understand what you're reading? Gently ask a question. Asking questions is a good way to get started in this process of evangelism. Asking probing questions. Asking the person what they believe. And then not just asking questions, but then you have to rely on the power of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice the response that the Ethiopian gives him. Do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, he said, How can I unless someone, what? Guides me. Someone guides me. To guide meant to direct, to help, to lead. As a matter of fact, that same word guide is what Jesus used of the Holy Spirit back in John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. And so this is called the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Here's what happens. When a lost person opens this book and begins reading it, they don't understand what they're reading. They need a guide. And so we come along and we share with them, but then the Holy Spirit does a work called illumination. He turns the light bulb on in their hearts and minds to begin to understand this truth. And so what we should be praying when we are uh, witnessing to someone or when we're reading the Bible is is Psalm 119.18. It says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, open that person's eyes that they can see the truth. Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolish to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So here's the issue. Those of us who have the truth have been commissioned to be guides to those who don't. And let me just say this. Most of you in this room know more than what you think you know. Even through osmosis of sitting here week after week, some of it sunk in. You know more than you think you know. And so you can share the gospel with someone. You can open the scriptures and guide them through what God is saying. Now, what's he reading? He's reading Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. It's the story from Isaiah about Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was, he was stricken. He was smitten. He was pierced. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, this can only be about Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. So you've got Isaiah 53, 7-8. It's what he's reading. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The imagery here is Jesus as the silent lamb of God going to the cross and taking the sins of his people. Peter also talks about Jesus being this lamb that's silent before it shears. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, we find these words. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now what Philip begins to do is evangelism not vandalism but evangelism and there's a lot of wacky stuff out there that passes for evangelism so what i'm going to do this morning is to share with you what evangelism is not before we get to philip's example of what evangelism is a lot of the material i'll be sharing with you i've gotten from mark dever's book the gospel and personal evangelism but let me share with you what evangelism is not okay because there's a lot of confusion out there first of all evangelism is not imposition it's not imposing your belief system onto someone else because think about it the gospel's not your opinion 
The gospel is not something you've made up. The gospel is not something that you're just trying to force down someone's throat. The gospel is a historical message that's been recorded in scriptures, and you're simply telling the truth of what actually happened over 2,000 years ago. Now, you can't control how the other person's going to respond. You can't control how everyone's going to respond to that. You, 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 You and I simply present the gospel compellingly, clearly, You pray for that person. You live a life of love toward them, but you leave the results up to God. You can't force someone into making a decision. So evangelism is not forcing someone. It's not imposing. It's simply telling the good news. You tell them the good news of what Christ has done. Now, secondly, and this is where you're going to disagree with me, but that's okay. Um, we'll, We'll talk about it. Secondly, evangelism is not sharing your personal testimony. Now, before you get upset, share your testimony. It's important. You need to share your story. But let me remind you, your story is not the gospel. Whether it happened to you or not, the gospel still the gospel. Here's the issue. Here's the issue. You see, in our subjective postmodern world, everybody's got a story. And all stories are on equal playing field. And so here's what happens a lot of times. You sit there and tell someone your personal testimony about how you've got all this peace, how you've got all this joy, how your life's gotten better because of Jesus. And guess what? A Buddhist or a Mormon or a New Ager or an Oprahite comes up and says, well, guess what? My life's better and I've got joy and I've got peace and they may actually have a better testimony than you. Than you. <laughs> Sorry. They may actually have a better testimony than you. At the surface. Their life may be working out better. So just because you share what God has done with you is not the gospel. It's not evangelism. Now do that. It's important. You need to do that. But notice what Paul says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. He doesn't say your personal testimony is the power. Now there is power in that. There is, there, there, you should share your testimony. But if that's all you share, what you're basically sharing is what's worked for you. You've not gotten to where the real power is, and that is in the gospel message. So let's just make sure that when we do evangelism, yes, we share our personal testimony, but let's not stop there. Because there may be somebody that comes along that has a better testimony than you, and then it becomes who can top each other's testimony. Who has the best life now? Well, probably Joel Osteen, because he's got a lot of money. He's got the best life now. But there may be other people. Thirdly, evangelism is not... And I'm sorry, Joel, I, I think wherever, if you're listening, I doubt you are. I didn't mean to disparage you from the pulpit. Thirdly, evangelism is not social action or deeds of kindness. That's not evangelism. Social action, deeds of kindness. Now, I'm the first in line to sign up for all of those types of things. Serve an evangelism, doing acts of kindness, doing sugar beet days where we, where we give water out to people. Uh, we can do, a, we can do a, um, a 4th of July outreach in the parking lot where we hand out hot dogs and popcorn and yet not do evangelism. You can go feed the poor. You can go build hospitals. You can go to orphanages. You can go do disaster relief and do all this social action and never get around to evangelism. The Red Cross and other humanitarian organizations do that. So 
Those are very great things to do, and we need to do those. We need to do those to build bridges. We need to find creative ways to reach people. But in and of themselves, social action, acts of kindness are not evangelism. You can go give a a cup of cold water to a person in God's name and never share with them the good news of the gospel. You see, here's the thing. There's suffering all around us. And we want to alleviate suffering wherever we see it. We want to help the poor. We want to help the orphans. We want to help the disenfranchised. We want to alleviate suffering, yes. But ultimately, we want to alleviate eternal suffering. You can feed a tummy, and you can bind a wound, and you can build a hospital, and those people still go to hell if they don't have the gospel. So those things are important, but that's not evangelism in and of itself. Fourthly, we must never confuse the results of evangelism with the actual practice of evangelism. Now, what do I mean by the results of evangelism? Some people think unless somebody walked an aisle, raised a hand, signed a card, or got dunked, no evangelism happened. Unless you see a visible outward response, there hasn't been evangelism. And sometimes we confuse the results of evangelism. Let me just give you a definition of evangelism. Here's evangelism. To clearly and compellingly share the gospel and leave the results up to God. You can't control the results. And so here's what often happens. In confusing the results of evangelism with evangelism, you can begin to do a lot of weird things to get results. You can attempt to bypass God's sovereignty in the process and think that if I do the right techniques, if I do the right programs, if I do the right marketing, if I do the right arm twisting, then somehow I can get the results I want. Because obviously the first time I shared the gospel, I didn't see the results. The next time I shared, I better do something different to get the results I want. I've been in churches like this where it's all about numbers. I've been on mission trips where it's been all about numbers, counting decisions, counting people that come forward. And there's a sense of guilt. If you don't see any outward manifestation, you, you sense that we haven't done it evangelism. Yes, if you've presented the gospel clearly, that's evangelism. You can't control the results. Now let me just preach for a moment, and then I'll get back to my message. Let me piggyback on last week's message about false converts for a moment, okay? I can think, this is just talking about Southern Baptist churches, so let me just pick on ourselves. I can think of no other movement or practice that has created more false converts than the altar call where someone comes forward, they say a quick prayer, you turn them around, you pronounce them saved, and then they go on their merry way and they never were genuinely saved in the first place. I've seen it happen my whole life. Now they may have walked forward, they may have raised a hand, they may have even gotten dunked, but they were not what we would call soundly saved by the gospel. Here's what happens later on in life when you begin to present the gospel to them. They begin to get resistance. They're hard-hearted because they've, they've not been saved. They've been decisionized. They've been talked into a decision. Because guess what? We want to feel good about all the things God's doing in our church. So we'll get decisions. We'll count the numbers. We want to get as many people saved as we can. So we look good to the denomination. We look good to the church down the street. We can inflate our ego thinking that God's doing a great work. And instead of actually presenting the gospel, we can bypass all these things and do this quick stuff to get quick decisions. And what it ends up doing is producing false converts. And it's dangerous. We need to take the time. And let me just stop and say this for just a moment. Some of you ask the question, how come sometimes you don't have an altar call at a manual. Let me just tell you why I don't like the term altar call. There is no altar but Jesus. 
When you create an altar, you make it sound like you're coming to the front of a building and there's something sacred about walking down here. There's nothing sacred about walking to the front of a piece of real estate. What really matters is the heart. And I can tell you this, more people in this church have been saved through our new members class and through sitting on the couch in my office than they ever have during coming down to the front. I'm not against people coming down the front. I'm just saying that in our culture where people don't understand it, I've seen a whole lot more people get saved by coming up after the service, spending the time. I'd rather spend two hours with someone explaining them the Bible then give a five-minute prayer or repeat after me. Repeat after me. Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Do you want to go to heaven? Yes, I want to go to heaven. Do you not want to go to hell? No, I don't want to go to hell. Okay, you're saved. Turn around. Everybody, he's saved. She's saved. That's dangerous. I would rather sit in my office for two hours, go through the scriptures, pray with that person, let them leave with doubts and, and knowing that they've been confronted with the gospel than to somehow like a pope pronounce someone saved because they said a prayer. Okay, I'm done. We can move on. Let's look at the three key elements that we see in Philip's evangelism. And we all see these in verse 35. Three things that Philip does that I think we would emulate. First of all, Philip opened his mouth. Duh. It's amazing that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write, Philip opened his mouth because it's a verbal witness. You've got to open your mouth and verbally share the gospel with someone who's lost. Now, here's a lot of times what happens. You live a good lifestyle, and by the way that you live, you hope somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I see the way you live. Uh, I want to be a Christian because I've seen your life. Very rarely does that happen. I'm not saying don't live a good testimony. I'm not saying don't live a good life. I'm just saying very rarely is someone going to come up to you and say, man, I want to be a Christian because of the way you live. At that moment, if they do come up to you and say, I want to be a Christian because of the way you live, you better at that moment do what? Open your mouth and explain to them the gospel. You've heard the slogan before. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. It's about as helpful as telling the Broncos, oh yeah, Beat the Patriots, but by the way, um, kick a field goal if necessary, use a ball, and, and have some uprights. Cook a lasagna dinner, and oh, by the way, uh, you might want to use some Prego and some noodles. Uh, it, it's an oxymoron to say, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. You, you haven't preached the gospel unless you've used words. And that's what Philip does. He opened his mouth. Secondly, notice what he does. He began with the scriptures. It begins and ends with the scriptures. He's not talking about himself. It's not me-centered. He's beginning with the scriptures. He probably sends there and he takes through, uh, we don't have the whole, the whole story here, but I'm assuming that he goes and explains line by line Isaiah 53 and shows how this is Jesus. And I'm sure he, he pointed a lot of Old Testament scriptures to Jesus. By the way, is the New Testament finished when Philip is, is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch? Do we have a New Testament? No. What is he, what's the, what's the Shirley Church's Bible? The Old Testament. So how do you talk about Jesus with just the Old Testament? Well, that's what the apostles did. What did Jesus do? Remember on the way to the Emmaus Road when those disciples said, did our hearts not burn within us? In Luke chapter 24, 27 through 32, listen to how Jesus does evangelism in the Old Testament. I'm assuming this is what Philip did. And beginning with Moses, okay, what's Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I mean, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, okay, all that other part, basically the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, what? The Old Testament, the things concerning who? Himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What did Jesus do? He said, I'm taking the whole Old Testament, and I'm showing you how it points to me. And I'm assuming that's what Philip does. He takes the Old Testament, especially that portion of Scripture in Isaiah, and says, this is all about Jesus. Everything I'm teaching you here is about Jesus. Is this about the prophet or someone he's speaking about? Well, and he goes and he begins to talk about how Jesus is the Lamb, and Jesus died on the cross, all those types of things. And that's where we get to the third thing. He opened his mouth, he began with the Scriptures, and thirdly, told him the good news about Jesus. Literally, the Greek word there is uangelitso. He evangelized. He shared the gospel. He preached the gospel. Now, where was Philip when he was preaching the gospel? It was like, was it all of a sudden, they're in the chariot, and then Philip gets off the chariot and pulls his little plexiglass pulpit and looks at the Ethiopian eunuch and starts preaching at him. Is that what happened? No, they're in the chariot talking. You can preach the gospel in your living room, across from a coffee table. You can preach the gospel on the basketball court. You can preach the gospel across the fence. You can preach the gospel in your cubicle. You don't have to stand behind a plexiglass pulpit and yell and scream and spit, okay, to preach. Preaching the gospel simply means you open your mouth, you begin with the scriptures, and you tell people about Jesus in a one-on-one, conversational, going-along-the-road way that Philip does. Philip asks questions. Do you understand what you're reading? No, I don't understand unless somebody tells me. Well, let me tell you. Let's open the Scriptures. Let's walk through this together. Let me explain this to you. That's preaching the gospel. Now, not only does he preach the gospel, but we've got to address this issue of baptism because in verse 36, they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, this would be a legitimate question from the, from the Ethiopian eunuch because by all accounts, he's an outsider. He's African, he's a Gentile, he's a eunuch. Can I even get baptized? Is this even allowed for me? I've trusted in Christ for salvation, and we're assuming Philip talked to him about baptism. We don't get the whole story, but how would the Ethiopian eunuch know unless Philip had explained to him baptism? And so a legitimate question, there's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? Now, God's sovereignty, where are they? They're in a desert. God provides, there's water right there. God's sovereignty right there. They're in the middle of a desert. What prevents me from getting baptized? There's water. Let's go down in there and get baptized. So let's look at three things related to baptism here that we see with the, with the Ethiopian eunuch. First of all, the candidate. The candidate for baptism. We practice believers' baptism here at Emmanuel because we look at the practice of the book of Acts and the scriptures. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see evidence of an infant baptism. In Acts, what you see, and we saw it last week, you believe first, and then after believing, you're baptized. And so believer's baptism means you've got to reach that point where you personally, you consciously are making the decision to trust in Christ, and you are being baptized after you have trusted him for salvation. Now, Let's talk about infant baptism. Just because we don't practice infant baptism doesn't mean that we don't care about the salvation of children. That's why we have uh, baby dedications. We dedicate babies to the Lord. And let me talk about um, children for just a moment in baptism. 
We've got a booklet that we produce called Preparing Your Child for Baptism. That parents, you can, that you can borrow from us and you can go with, uh, go through it with your children. Um, we don't baptize four or five-year-old kids. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable baptizing anyone, uh, you know, under the age of, of 10. You know, 9 and 10, 11 is probably about the time where, where a child can begin to understand. And it's their decision, not their parents. They're making the decision for themselves. And so, um, baptism after salvation. Now, secondly... If the candidate for baptism is a believer who's trusted Christ for salvation and then they're baptized afterward, what's the mode of baptism? Now, this is an intramural argument. This is not a dogma that we're going to die on a hill and say other people that practice like sprinkling or pouring, they're going to hell. We're just saying as a Baptist church, this is how we understand the mode of baptism. The word baptizo, the Greek word means to plunge, to dip, to immerse, to dunk, whatever word you want to call. And you also get a textual note here. Notice what the scripture says. They went down into the water and they came up out of the water. So they actually got down into the water and they baptized by immersion. Thirdly, what's the meaning of baptism? What does it mean? Well, when you're in the waters of baptism, and you've seen our baptisms before, you are representing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on the cross, he died upright. They buried him in a tomb. He rose again. When you're baptized, you're saying, I'm identifying with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, but also I am dying to my old self. When I become a Christian, my old life dies. That sinner who I was dies, and God has raised me to new life. God has given me new birth. And also, the whole reason you go under the water is symbolic that you're a sinner from head to toe, and symbolically, you need to be washed. Now, baptism doesn't save you. It's not as if if you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. But we have an example here, and we'll see it over and over again, of someone in Acts, hears the gospel, responds to the gospel, believes the gospel, trusts Jesus, and then they are baptized. The ending of the story is very interesting. We see the end of Philip, and then he doesn't reappear until Acts 21 later on when he's living in Caesarea. And here's an interesting thing. Again, this is an unrepeatable thing. Has this ever happened to anybody? Beam me up, Scotty. I'm done with my evangelism. That's what happens here to Philip. He came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried him away, and the eunuch saw him no more. That word carried away is the same word we get our, the word rapture, harpazo. He was caught up. And then he found himself in another town. And this is a unique, one-of-a-kind experience that only happens during Bible times. We can't really explain it. Probably not the best thing to do for you. For Philip, his job was done, and God moved him. For you, when you've shared the gospel, when you've opened the scriptures, when you've prayed for that person, when you've loved on that person, when you've encouraged them, and they do trust Christ— What's the last thing you want to do? You don't want to bail on them. You want to walk with them. You want to encourage them. You want to disciple them. You want to be there for them. But notice the response of the Ethiopian eunuch. How did he respond to this whole salvation? Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way, what? Rejoicing. Same thing happened last week with the Samaritans. When they were saved and baptized, they rejoiced. So salvation should cause joy, 
Why is there so much joy in salvation? Because you've been transformed. You've been saved. You've been renewed. You're a new person in Christ. God has taken you out of bondage and given you freedom. You've been forgiven. That should produce a deep joy in our hearts of what Christ has done in us. Now, we don't get a lot of of, of attention to Philip in the scriptures. There's not a lot of press. Philip gets basically one chapter, chapter 8. Two unique episodes of evangelism. But in reality, when you think about it, Philip's the first evangelist to a non-Jewish people, an Ethiopian eunuch and the Samaritans before Peter and before Paul. They tend to get more press. And it's an encouragement because Philip's just an ordinary dude. He's not an apostle. He's not a superman. He's just an ordinary guy like you and me. But what happened? What happened? He was obedient. He was ready. He opened his mouth. He used the scriptures and he preached Jesus. And what do we see how it ends? Look at when he, when he finds himself, I like that. Philip found himself at Azotaz. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. He continued to preach the gospel. Let's not make evangelism harder than it is. And I'm, I'm the first in line to tell you, I don't do a great job at it. What is evangelism? Simply this. Telling the gospel clearly, compellingly, and leaving the results up to God. But that means, as you do that, you pray like crazy for that person's salvation. You love that person. You encourage that person. You immerse yourself in the word so that you can answer their objections. You walk alongside that person. You show kindness to that person. You don't abandon that person. You are there for that person, but you can't control the results. You love, you share, you pour your life into them. You pray, but at the end of the day, God's got to be the one that does that. You pray for divine appointments. You pray for those desert road experiences. Now, as we start out 2012, I can think of no better thing to do than to begin to pray for lost people by name. We often do this on our, on our Sunday night prayer meetings. We'll pray for lost people by name. Now, I'm going to ask our men to come forward here for just a moment. And we're going to um, hand out these cards that we've done in the past. This is the intersect card. Don't be scared off by the name. Intersect just means where your life, your gospel intersect with others. And here's what it is. On the front, it's got three little blanks here. I will intercede on behalf, interact with, and invite to EBC the following three people. You can write it three, but at least one person. Who is one person in your life, preferably three, but one, that you know, you guys can begin passing those out, that that you know needs the gospel, needs Jesus. Write their name down on this card. Put it in your wallet. Put it in your Bible. Would you commit to pray daily for that person by name? Pray for God's Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Pray that you would have divine opportunities to talk to them. Pray that they would ask you questions. If you're praying daily for that person on this intersect card, what a a great way to start out 2011. On the back, there's the eyes. Intake. I will saturate myself with the gospel through daily intake of scripture. I've got to be intaking the scripture myself. Intercede. I will pray consistently for lost people by name on a daily basis. Interact. I will build relationships with lost people. Invite. I will invite lost people to EBC. Invest. I will ask a lost person if he or she would be willing to do a one-on-one or group Bible study that explores the beliefs of Christianity. Intersect. Where Jesus, his gospel, and my life intersect with the lost world. And I'm not saying that you fill this out right now, but take this home and think about who in your life can I be praying for on a daily basis 
that needs the gospel. And would we be like Philip, who's immediately obedient? He obeyed the voice of the Holy Spirit. He ran to the chariot. He opened his mouth. He began with the scriptures, and he simply shared the good news of Jesus. Yes, share your testimony. Yes, do acts of kindness. Yes, love on them. But at the end of the day, evangelism is simply sharing the gospel with others and leaving the results up to God. As these are being passed out, let me go ahead and ask you to, to bow your heads. If you, Hopefully everybody's gotten one. If you run out, let us know and we'll, we'll, we'll make some more. But I want us just to bow our heads and, and close the service thinking about, um, well, there's, there's, there's really three things to be thinking about this morning um, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. One is, am I truly saved? Am I, am I the Ethiopian eunuch? Am I the one that's, 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 that doesn't have a relationship with Christ and, and I'm here this morning and I've never trusted Christ for salvation? Maybe today is the day where you trust Christ for salvation. You clearly understand that Christ died on the cross. He rose again. He calls you to repent and believe in him. Would today be your day of salvation where you submit your life to him? If you're one of those people in this room this morning that's never done that, what better day than today than to trust Christ for salvation? Secondly, maybe you're in this room today and you have trusted Christ, but you've never followed the Lord and what we would call believer's baptism. Maybe you've never been baptized by immersion and we're not going to embarrass you and ask you to to walk up to the front, but maybe after the service you need to come up and talk with me or maybe you need to make an appointment with me or one of the elders or or Pastor Andrew if you're a youth or or maybe you're you're a child here and you need to go talk to your parents about what it means to be baptized by immersion. Make that opportunity this morning third thing that we want to talk about this morning is your evangelism. The last thing I want to do is beat us up this morning because we're not doing it. We know we need to do it. Are we asking the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to open our mouths, begin with the scriptures, and tell the good news about Jesus? And right now in this moment, I want you in the quietness of this moment to maybe think about, ask the Lord to place that person's name on your heart or your mind that you could begin praying for. And maybe even right now you want to write their name down. So let's just spend some time in quiet reflection, quiet prayer, quiet thinking uh, as you go before the Lord and deal with some of these issues this morning. Are you saved? Are you baptized? How are you doing in your personal evangelism? Spend some time in prayer this morning. Begin to pray to the Lord this morning. I just want to remind you that right after the service this morning, If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ or you have questions about baptism and you want someone to pray with you for the sake of time, because we want to spend time with you. We don't want to rush through and we don't want you up here while the praise team's singing and we we can barely hear up at the front here. I invite you to come after the service and sit down and talk. Pastor Andrew will be here. I'm sure one of our elders will be here as well. We don't want you to, to feel like you have to leave this place without having someone to talk to, but we want to give you the space and the time and the comfort to be able to do that. And so after the, the last song, would you take that opportunity to come down and just talk to one of us about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that... Um, you use weak people like us to actually even share the gospel, Lord. And we know that we're not very good at it. We know that we don't do, we don't do, the, do it the way we should. And we're, we're lousy at it, Lord. At least I'm, at, I'm lousy at it. I'll admit it. But I trust in your power, God. I trust in your grace. And Lord, help me. Give me the strength to just open my mouth, share the gospel, 
Leave the results up to you. Love people. Encourage people. Do acts of kindness. All knowing, Lord, that I can't force anybody to make a decision. It's got to be you. Give us the power to pray specifically for these names, Lord. We pray for the salvation of all these names. Think of 200 names on a li- uh, two to 300 people in this room. And Lord, just think about the impact it would be if, if that many people came to faith over the next few months. Lord, what an amazing act of grace it would be. So Lord, just give us encouragement this morning through the gospel to be the people you've called us to be. And in all things, may we do it for your glory and for your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.